everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. I am Emily Nagoski. I'm Amelia Nagoski. And this is a podcast for any feminist who feels overwhelmed and exhausted by everything they have to get done and yet still worries that they are not doing enough. This week on the podcast, by request, we're going to talk explicitly about bystander interventions. So these are when you are a witness to something that you're like, that was not okay. And you're like, do I say something? What do I say? What do I do? Am I the right person to intervene at this moment? We did one podcast a little bit like this way the heck back last November around American Thanksgiving, because that's a holiday where people are often confronted with family members that they don't have to see all that often, where there's the possibility that like they might be invited into a conversation that would typically be difficult or controversial. And our main focus in that was whether or not to engage, like making that decision, particularly given that you are very unlikely to change anybody's mind. And we keep that point of view that you are unlikely to change anybody's mind. That is not what a bystander intervention is about. Bystander interventions are about reducing harm and interrupting not so good things before they escalate into increasing harm. You're interrupting before it can get worse. Does that make sense so far, Amelia? Yeah. Now I, I'm taking the lead on this one, not least because one of my jobs, when I had a day job was organizing the bystander interventions on my campus. One of the things that was mandated by the Campus Save Act in, I think, 2011, was that all campuses are required to have uh, sexual violence prevention intervention, specifically bystander training for all faculty, staff, and incoming students. Bystander interventions were mandated because they are the, to my knowledge, the only evidence-based intervention for preventing sexual assault. For a long time, we tried educating basically women students in how not to be sexually assaulted, which is um, a problem from the point of view is why are you making it her job not to get herself sexually assaulted? Yikes, that's not okay. Um, But if you try educating the potential perpetrators, first of all, only a very small proportion of the population is actually responsible for perpetration. And uh, they're not real persuadable through educational preventive interventions. It turns out that the most effective preventive intervention is not with person A, the target of the assault, or person B, the person who's perpetrating the assault, but with person C, who witnesses the precursors of the violence, is trained to recognize those precursors for what they are, and is then trained on practical strategies for interrupting when the precursors are early on before it escalates to sexual violence. And most of us are going to end up being person C a few times in our lives, potentially. Yes. We'll probably never be person B. It's probably rare that we'd ever be person A, but we're person C all the time. I'm, I'm not going to say that that's rare to be person A, but... Okay. <laughs> it's less person to be person, person C. A. The person we're going to be of... most of the time is person C. Yeah, the person we are most of the time is person C. The thing is, we're person C all the time to all kinds of precursors of not okay things. Mm -hmm. And the kinds of not okay things that the formal training was about was sexual violence, but the students all saw immediately that this was a skill set they could use with other kinds of bystander interventions. If they heard somebody say something racist or homophobic or Islamophobic or other xenophobic, 
transphobic if they witness the precursors for any kind of violence. They learn to recognize what those precursors were, and they use these skills that I was teaching on how to intervene. The program I was trained in that I adapted for my campus was the Green Dot program, which you can go ahead and look up if you want to. Um, the component of it that I kept most intact was the idea of the three Ds, the three styles of intervention. So let's imagine that you can already recognize when something not okay is happening, mostly because you're listening to your body, because some part inside you, Amelia, you're not awesome at listening to your body, but you are awesome at recognizing when something not okay has happened. How do you know? I don't know. I mean, often it's something someone says, and it's very clear, like, that thing you just said was not okay. Yeah, but the okayness, you don't hear it explicitly in the words. Presumably they feel like it's an okay thing to say. Something inside you is like, that's not okay. Where do you feel it? I have no idea. Sorry. It might be too hard a question for you to answer. It, it feels uh, intellectual Just to, to keep, keep listeners up to date, Amelia is still wrestling with her COVID fatigue. Yeah. I'm she actually got COVID. I'm actually laying in bed right now. She's, you know, maybe horizontal. And I was horizontal for a couple of episodes back in April when my back was at its worst. So, you know, we do what we gotta do. Do what you gotta do. So you recognize someplace inside you that something not okay is happening. This episode is about what to do next, now that you have noticed that something not okay happened. Okay. And this is where the three Ds come in. The three Ds are distract, delegate, and direct. I'm going to go in opposite order. So let's start with direct. This mm -hmm. is an intervention that directly addresses the not okay thing that is happening in front of you, where you might not be a direct participant, your person C, but you notice something that's not okay and you address it directly by approaching the person who did the not okay thing and say, hey, that thing was not okay. Or you approach the person who is the target of the not okay thing and say, something not okay happened. Are you all right? I feel like that wasn't okay and I want to be here for you. Direct interventions. These are ones that I feel like you're especially good at, right, Amelia? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a form of confrontation, which I feel like is one of my strengths. Okay. Uh, so can you tell us a story about a time when you directly intervened? There are, there are so many. There are so many. There are so many. But so... Rather than like an individual story, can I talk about sort of the two categories of direct oh, intervention? Sure. I, yeah. These are just the ways that when I think back to all the direct confrontations I've had about things that are not okay, they fall into two categories. One is didactic and the other is PSA. Didactic is for situations where I am a teacher, I am a parent, I am someone who cares about the person and believes that I have authority and and energy enough to help teach them gently, warmly, to actually try to inform them about why what they did is wrong and how they can change it or why it's important that they change it. I've done that so many times. Let's pause and uh, recapitulate those questions. Am I the right person to intervene in the situation? Do I have the right information in order to be able to intervene and teach this person can I intervene authoritatively here? And do I have the wherewithal? Like right now in your current state, if somebody said something not okay, you might notice it and be like, I can't even right now. I just, just not right now. You're not the right person in that moment. So you make mm -hmm. the choice to make a direct intervention when you're the right person, you have the right resources, including just sort of like the emotional and physical wherewithal to yeah. intervene. Yeah. Didactically. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 
So my, we're standing in line on vacation to board a boat tour, and my stepdaughter's boyfriend is talking about how he's not sure that white privilege is real. So I take like seven minutes. Let's standing pause. In let's pause. Ooh, okay. Like, yep, that's a lot. That's a lot. So I take like time. We're standing in line. He's a captive audience, and I'm the stepmother. So I can be a little bit wicked and a little bit like, you know, I can poke a little bit. I feel like I don't have to be gentle. I mean, I was as gentle as you possibly can be with a 22-year-old boy who believes that white privilege might not be real. 22-year-old, uh, let's face it, fairly affluent white dude. Extremely affluent white dude from the South. So I explain, like, I'm talking through, like, systemic racism and the history of, like, how slavery 200 years ago, yes, still impacts how black people are treated today. Like, so I went, I spent time, and I talked it all through, and I don't think I changed his mind, but I, I at least introduced him to the possibility that something else is possible than the thing he may have been indoctrinated to believe. That's a huge investment, emotionally and time-wise, but that was a place where I felt like I was the right person who, who could maybe say a thing or two that would help. <laughs> and at least let him know that shit's not okay. Yeah. So didactic, when you're the right person for the job, you have the information, you have the time, you have the energy. Yeah. You do the education. Yeah. Directly. Yeah. Um, the other one is PSA, which stands for Public Service Argument. It means that <laughs> I am... <laughs> I'm not there to teach you. I'm there to make a stir and to draw attention to the fact that that shit's not okay. So that the other people around hear that shit's not okay. Both for the people who agree with the thing that's not okay. So they're like, oh, I guess I'm not allowed to say that here. And also for the people who may be the target of the thing that's not okay. So that they know that someone here is on their side and willing to, you know, stand up and take a hit. Great. I did not expect you to say public service argument, but <laughs> it makes sense that you did. Yeah. It's an argument in service of the public good. Yeah. Making sure everybody, from... which I, I think a didactic intervention necessarily, as long as it takes place in public, is doing the same thing. There is an argument in favor of like asking the person to step away and intervene privately. Yeah. Which is absolutely a decision people can make if you have the right kind of relationship with that person. Yeah. And certainly, especially in a professional setting, often the wisest move is to talk to the person after the fact or later separately, not in front of a whole group of people. Because that can be interpreted just as a power play. Yeah. Shaming. Right. Which, I mean, sometimes it is. And that's fair enough. Yeah, that's a PSA, though. Yeah, that's a PSA where you're like, let me show everybody what the correct thing to say and do is. Yeah. And it's not even about whether or not you actually learn yeah. this content. It's learning no. the lesson of not saying that shit in front of me. It's not about directly trying to intervene with the person who said the not okay thing or did the not okay thing it's about showing everyone else around that shit's not yeah. okay and people will notice that we are not doing like here are the words that you say when you hear somebody say xyz because it's not about that nope if you don't know what words to say there are lots of guides online for different kinds of not okay things people can say yep for specific situations and specific kinds of bigotry and harm that people can inflict on each other. So many kinds um, of bigotry and harm. And it's it's really a question of like paying attention to whether or not you're the right person in the situation to be doing that, which like you are the one who can judge that. So for example, Amelia, 
swamped with COVID fatigue, not the right person in almost any situation right now because she just doesn't have it. If a person has said something racist and you are the only person of color in the room, maybe you want to be the person who does the job and people will give you that sense of credibility because you are the person with the lived experience. But also, like, you don't have to be the right person for that job. First of all, not your responsibility to, like, teach all the still learning white people how not to be racist but also are they going to take you as seriously as they would another white person if you're in a situation where you're not the person who's going to be listened to it doesn't have to be your job to like say the thing even though nobody's going to take you seriously you are not required to do that for the world mm -hmm. but if you're like i'm not the right person to say the thing right now like the effort i invest is not going to be what changes the situation or interrupts this flow of violence. I can say all the things in the world and it's throwing pebbles into the ocean. Like, I am not going to be the one who does the thing. Then direct intervention might not be the intervention for you. Which brings us to delegate. Delegation is when you ask someone else to intervene for you. And this can happen in an explicit way where somebody else in the room, you look to them and say, could you please say something about this? Or it can happen non-verbally. I'm thinking specifically of a way early in our relationship, Rich and I went to a Burger King together and there was this very angry old white man yelling at the young African-American woman behind the counter at the Burger King, like yelling. And he had the kind of rage that just like makes me turn cold and shut down. Like I didn't know what to do or say. The girl behind the counter met my eyes and we both had the same feeling of like swamped, cold overwhelm of like facing this screaming rage from a customer to Burger King. Oh. Yeah. And so I looked up at Rich, who saw what was happening with me. And uh, he talked to the guy. And I, I forget exactly what he said. It was something like, man, you just can't take some people seriously. And the, the guy goes, I know, right? And he starts ranting. And Rich goes, no, no, I meant you. <laughs> and the guy storms out to his truck and like drives off in a crunch of gravel and dust that's awesome like because of my emotional state and maybe because of my status as a woman he wasn't gonna listen to me anyway no i delegated and i didn't do it verbally i did it just by like moving eye contact to somebody who it seemed like they might be in a better position to intervene than i was yeah and he did very successfully did he teach that guy? Let me point out to you the power dynamics of the situation. You're the customer. You're the white dude. You're a dude. Like, no. There was no education that happened. There was no changing of minds. There was no insight. He just interrupted the flow of violence. And the guy left. And that's a win. One of the most important lessons of effective bystander interventions is it's anything that interrupts the flow of violence. Mm -hmm. No one can do everything right, but everybody has to do something. Mm -hmm. And here's my definition of something. Something is anything that isn't nothing. And the something I did in that moment was look to somebody else. Yeah. Like, here's a not okay situation. I'm not the right person to intervene right now. My and story of delegation is also one of enlisting a tall white man and... As much as I hate to be like, well, sometimes you need the help of a tall white man, like a large, physically, you know, um, intimidating white male, 
And sometimes, like, it's just those are the people who have the most power. So that's the person who should be doing the work. Yeah. And, and it's okay to call them in. So my story of, of delegation comes from when I was teaching high school. I used to teach high school. And when you're teaching at a public high school, you have different duties besides just teaching. So I had hallway duty before homeroom. Um, it was me and an English teacher who was like six foot two white guy um, who was also a wrestling coach. So he and I are standing in the hall and just watching kids and talking and whatever. And there's a, a boy and a girl having kind of a quiet, intense conversation. And the boy starts to kind of loom and press into the girl. Yeah. And he and I are both watching this scene like, this is not okay. And I'm like, I don't think this is me. And he just walks over real casual and just kind of looms and is like, you know, separates them and, and does the thing. But it was a case where I was not the person for that job. Yeah. And was there a way that you communicated to the guy? Like, I can't be the one who does this. Yeah, we looked at each other and it was, it just happened. We were both thinking like somebody's got to do something and he's, you know, looking down eight inches <laughs> from his eyes to my eyes. And was like, like he's yeah, obviously like, this is not my job. You're like, I can't be the one who does this. Yeah, that's a really good example. And that's often how it happens. Um, it may be that you are yourself a survivor of the kind of violence that you are witnessing, um, and so your body reacts to it with a trauma response. This is very, very common, very normal. And that puts you in a state where your first priority can be processing your stuff, like taking care of you, in which case you ask somebody else, like, there's this not okay thing happening. It has, I know that it's not okay because it has started all this stuff in me. And so I can't do the thing of interrupting. And I'm going to ask you to notice this and do whatever feels right for you to intervene. That's delegating. Mm -hmm. If you're not the person who knows this stuff or has the right social status in the room or you don't have the wherewithal, you're allowed to ask for help. My one caveat is if you want it done your way, you have to do it yourself. If you wanted that boy in the hallway to learn what it was about what he was doing that was not acceptable, then what your colleague did did not achieve that. Mm -mm. But that's not the goal. The goal is simply to interrupt the flow before it escalates. Yeah. And sometimes you're not the right person. And on those occasions, you delegate. And that is doing something. And the goal with bystander intervention is not to, like, change the whole world, but to interrupt in this moment this not okay thing that's happening. So the first D was direct, where you directly address either the person who's engaging in the not okay behavior, the person who is the target of the not okay behavior. The second is to delegate. If you're not the right person or if you don't have any of the resources that it takes, and it takes a lot of resource to intervene directly, then you ask somebody else, either explicitly or implicitly. You engage someone's assistance. You ask for help. And then the third, does that make sense, the delegation? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then the third, and, and why you would delegate rather than directly intervene? Yeah. So the third is distract, which is maybe the most controversial but it's also my favorite, and I think the one that holds the most power and promise for empowering people who don't feel like they have the wherewithal to like effectively interrupt a thing with an educational intervention or even to stand up and show the world, look at me intervening so that everybody knows, public service argument. And uh, they don't necessarily feel comfortable asking for help, but there isn't anyone they can ask for help. They can still do this distraction thing where, again, you're interrupting. But it's kind of what your colleague did. Like, he didn't say anything. He didn't do any education. 
He just sort of no. loomed. He just hovered. He well, was a physical presence. He also physically separated them. And, I mean, it was a, it was a very clear direct intervention. Oh, well, that's direct then. Yeah, yeah. never mind. Yeah. So, I mean, I have a lot of examples of... He's also, he was also an authority figure, a teacher in the hallway. And yep. high school students are still young enough that if you're an authority figure, they probably are just like, have a instinctive response to do the things you say still a little bit. Anyway, he brought all his authority to bear and was just like, and no. And made it happen. Well, there you go then. A distraction is not like that. Yeah. A distraction can be you walk over and crack a joke. Or you become the socially awkward person who's like, hey, everybody, what's happening over here? <laughs> there are so many stories. I had some students who were at a county fair and they witnessed a couple in an argument that was escalating to a place where they the, the students observing it were like, I just, I just feel like this is really not okay and I feel like we should do something and there was no one around for them to ask. Mm -hmm. um, so they sort of like confabulated together. They whispered with each other and here's what they finally did. Together, they walked over to this arguing, yelling couple with one person like leaning down and pointing and yelling at the other person. Uh, and they said, we're so sorry to interrupt. We are so lost. We're looking for the parking lot. Mm -hmm. Do you guys know where the parking lot is? I'm so sorry to interrupt. Okay. Which is like an incredibly awkward thing to do. Mm -hmm. And does it teach him not, not to do the yelling? He's a heterosexual couple. Does it teach him not to do the yelling? Does it ask her, hey, are you safe? Do you have somewhere safe to go after this? Do you know that what's happening now is not okay? Do you know this is a precursor to an increased level of violence? No, but it reminds these people that they are in a public place and they're being observed. It's not nothing. It defuses yeah. the frustration and it shows everybody else, look, if you have courage, you can stop this. Mm -hmm. You can bring the volume, the temperature of this argument down to a level that feels okay. Because if we introduce the police in a situation that could under a lot of circumstances, escalate the situation instead. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are so many examples of this. Uh, at a party, a guy observing another dude, like, cornering a girl. Yeah. And so he goes over, he doesn't know her, but he goes over and drapes his arm around her and is like, hey, honey, I've been looking for you. Hey, man, you don't mind me interrupting, pulling this away, huh? And Because mm -hmm. she's quite drunk which is what makes her a good target. Mm -hmm. um, so is it awesome that he's like using his male privilege to claim a woman? It's not super awesome. It's, you know, using exactly the same power dynamic that allows sexual violence to happen. But he's inter he's doing something. He's getting her out of the harm's way. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. He's doing something. Yeah. That isn't nothing. And mm -hmm. he de-escalated the violence. And when you compare... The like he's using his male privilege and using a cultural narrative that is itself harmful. Mm -hmm. You contrast that with the potential harm he he prevented. Yeah, and you're like, you know what? I'm all right with that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. let that be okay. There's there's a lot of like spilling stuff that goes in the distraction. Oh my <laughs> god, I'm so sorry. There mm -hmm. is literally just changing the subject. I bet you've done this one. I can't think of any times when I've distracted instead of. <laughs> Can't think of any. I, I distract a lot when 
not great conversations start because my emotional reaction is so big. It strips my ability to think critically and rationally. Mm -hmm. I know that I'm not going to be able to intervene in a way that I feel like is truly educational, but is just me like having my feelings all over this person. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I get home, I'm going to feel really shitty about my failure to communicate rationally and clearly. This is where we differ. Yeah. Because if I don't say anything, that's when I go home and feel terrible. Yes, rage fridge is the phenomenon that we described in the Thanksgiving episode. Yeah. That, like, I have a pretty big one, and I'm going to remember that it's there. So I put my rage in a fridge, and it'll keep until I get home. And then I will process it. And your rage fridge is really tiny, Mm -hmm. and also you tend to forget that things are in there. (laughs) So they, like, rot and fester, and by the time you open it, like, it just, like, comes to get you. Yeah. Yeah. I also, I have guilt for when I don't take action. So if I say something and it's the wrong thing, or I don't communicate clearly, or I haven't educated the person as thoroughly as I wish I could, or I have regret that I'd said something differently, that regret and wish is far less mm, unpleasant for me than the regret of not having said anything. Not having directly addressed the situation. Yes. And let's be clear that when you intervene in that direct way, there are circumstances where you could be escalating the situation. Yeah. And I, it's rare that I feel comfortable escalating. Yeah. It's when there's real risk of danger and escalation that I, that I don't do anything and then I, I feel bad about it for years. And, and I by can... real risk of danger and escalating, do you mean physical harm? I mean physical harm, yeah. Yeah. Which is not the only real. Right. But, but. I'll, I mean, I'll take an argument all day long if my body is safe. I'll, yeah. Or if other people's bodies are safe. Or if I can absorb the, the rage. That's not, yeah. I, I'll do that all day. But uh, if somebody, if there's like physical risk to me or other people, that's when I step away and I can't and then I feel terrible forever. But now you can know that delegation is correct. Like, like you don't feel terrible forever about your colleague going over and hovering over the couple where the not okay dynamic was happening. I do remember it, wishing that I could have been comfortable doing that. And maybe as a high school teacher, as a teacher in the hallway, I could have had enough authority to impact the situation. That's how I think back on it now is I wish if that circumstance came now, I would hope that I felt comfortable that you would trust your authority to be enough of like a kevlar vest yeah but i was like 24 you know yeah and young looking 24 like i got asked for hall passes when i first yeah. started working at that school because we look 16 until we're about 30 yeah so yeah i have a lot of regret if i don't intervene so the idea of distracting and not doing anything i think that it's a fantastic option for people you can who live with it. do not feel comfortable with direct confrontation, because it's a little bit of confrontation, so I understand that that's really hard for almost everyone. And I think that that's, and people have this kind of perfectionistic sense of, if I don't teach the person, then I shouldn't do anything. If I can't, if I can't stop it, then I shouldn't do anything. Like, do something, something, anything that's not nothing. Yeah. It's helpful. It's and for me, because I lived in Indiana for seven years. And was often just, like, on the street, witness to a lot of douchebaggery. 
Yeah. Like in the lead up to the 2004 presidential election, high school boys in parking lots, dude. There is nothing that like activates my rage more than like affluent or middle class white teenage boys in a parking lot sitting on their cars and laughing in that sort of grotesque way that affluent white teenage boys laugh. Like it just is disgusting to me. And so I tried at first to say things to them as a stranger in a parking lot to indicate that like not everyone agrees with them and there's a another position worth considering and maybe they're doing harm uh-huh. and all they fucking did was laugh more and be it was i was just fueling their fire yeah exactly there was literally nothing i could have said or done in that situation nope. that would be in any way helpful uh-huh. and i regret having tried because it just targeted their grotesqueness at me and i fed their contempt Mm -hmm. for anyone who wasn't like them. Mm -hmm. I I wish I hadn't done or said anything on any of those situations. There were only a couple of them. So I learned how to walk by it and and not increase their contempt. Mm. Their sense of self-righteous, everything we're saying is right, everyone we talk to agrees with us, And anybody who doesn't agree with us is an object of ridicule and just shows us how right we are. And increases their sense of tribal unity because they got an opportunity to bond over another target. Right. Yeah. Fucking bullies. Yeah. Uh, So maybe that's why. It's because I had that different experience of those situations in Indiana. Whereas most of my situations with horrible teenage boys is when I was a teacher... And they knew yeah. that I was, you know, so I, I had some authority and I could literally just break them up and send them away. Right. Yeah. That's that's not what I got. Yeah. So I love distraction. I love like spilling a drink, making a fool of myself, being socially awkward, cracking a joke, shifting the direction of the conversation, yeah. literally just talking about something else. Most of what we've been talking about is sexual violence or the precursors of it when people say or do something racist or otherwise homophobic xenophobic islamophobic but the conversation originally started around interrupting fat talk body talk food talk body shame Mm -hmm. when people start saying things about having to earn food or deserving food or i went for a run and so i get to or after i eat this i'm going to have to um when people start talking about weight, when people start saying critical things about their own bodies, like, I guess people get to say whatever they want to about their own bodies, but you make the world a better place when you make it more difficult for people to say out loud critical things about their bodies. Because mm-hmm. from the Bikini Industrial Complex and the New Hotness episodes, we know that it doesn't do any good and it's not grounded in any kind of health intervention to worry about conforming to the culturally constructed aspirational beauty ideal. So what do you say or do when people start saying the stuff and talking about the stuff? And I almost always use a distraction. Instead of talking about it directly, I change the subject to how delicious the food is. Yeah. Usually. Yeah. The hardest one for me, and this came up in the in the conversation about there there have been a few times people have talked to me about this both from the podcast episode and other times in my life it's hardest when there are kids involved when you hear somebody talking to their child 
using the Keeney Industrial Complex language, passing it right on to their kids, mm-hmm. or when someone else talks to your own child in those terms and reinforces the idea that their body can be right or wrong, good or bad, that food can be earned and is not unconditional, that pleasure is source of shame. What do you do in those instances? And I think most of the time, you know, if you're an adult caregiver and you're around kids, then you teach the way you teach. Whatever your parenting style is of role modeling, an appropriate relationship with food, an appropriate relationship with your body, an appropriate healthy relationship with sensation and movement, you do that. You be a teacher. One of the things we say over and over on the podcast is that the most important thing you can do is to deal with your own shit. So if your emotional stuff gets activated, witnessing somebody engaging in fat talk, body talk, food talk, shame talk, if if you're like, feelings, then chances are you're not going to be like at your most articulate. <laughs> so the like more you can process your stuff, the more you can use the strategies in the bikini industrial complex and new hotness episodes to inoculate yourself, to heal from the damage that's been done to you, the better position you'll be in to say and do things that are direct in that situation. Mm -hmm. But if you find yourself in a place where like you are just overwhelmed by the complexity and difficulty and horror, the grief of having spent so many years of your life being told this message and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, go for the distract. This nice china. Your plates are gorgeous. Yeah. My grandmother had glasses just like this. I was going to (laughs) say. I remember always wanting. I remember... Like memories of cutlery, mm-hmm. favorite foods, things that are delicious. If you want to like stay with food talk, any objects in the room to admire, the weather, yeah. your dogs, funny things about the way dogs eat. Yeah. If you're still in progress in terms of healing your shit around whatever the issue is. Which almost all of us are almost all the time. Yeah. You you don't have to, like, confront it in other people at the same time as you're trying to do it in yourself. Like, just just do anything. Literally anything to change the flow of the conversation. And if you are worried that the person who was the target of the harm is still carrying that, you can go talk to them later when you're in a better place to be able to talk to them productively, to check in with them. If you want to later go talk to the person like if there's a parent of a kid who is over at your house and you just want to like let them know what the rules are in your house, we don't do food talk, fat talk, body talk. We don't do that stuff. Yeah. Um, that's that's fair. That person is going to be much more receptive to your message if you are not hugely activated yeah. in your rage and shame. And that kind of, if you told a kid, hey, in our house, we don't do fat talk, body talk, shame talk you'd probably blow their minds that that kind of thing is a thing you could not do. But if you say that when you're in that activated state, all they're going to know is they did something that made you feel rage and shame and they need to never do that again and just feel terrible about it. But if you can just be like, the the rule in our house is we don't talk about food, weight, calories. We talk about how delicious food is and when dinner is. Yeah. We think all bodies are perfect exactly the way they are. That's the rule in our house. You then you blow mind. their mind. Yeah. Because they're like, what if I don't have to feel like... <gasps> I don't have to. What if, 
Think about food. There exists a house. Yeah. Where, where they believe don't... bodies are perfect. Hmm. What? And you know what? Like, they, they, it will not change their life forever, probably, but, like, it plants a seed. Fucking might. And you never know yeah. what it could turn into. If you can do a direct intervention, great. And if you can't do a direct intervention, you can just do a distraction where you interrupt it and don't let it escalate into greater and greater body talk, fat talk, weight talk, food talk. Yeah. Oh, man. And if you don't, like, if you are not sure that you can recognize those things, oh, yes, you can. Oh, yes, you can. You can sit down right now and make a list of things you've heard people say, thoughts that run through your own head. Things that get said at dinner parties. Things that get said at fucking lunch in workplaces. Oh, yeah. There is not... And I have mostly worked in health centers in my life. And the amount of fat talk, food talk, food shame that happens yeah. when you've got a dozen nurses around a lunch table. Yeah. I remember blows your mind. really distinctly the first time I had a meal where that was not a topic of conversation among, like, a large group of people. I was at a conference for conductors and... With college conductors, the overwhelming majority are men. So I was out having dinner with like five other conductors who were all men. And we sat down and we ordered. And when the food came, like somebody ordered a salad and somebody ordered like a burger with fries. And it seemed so obvious to me there would be some like teasing about the guy eating a salad. Like, oh, you watch me wait. Like, I assumed that that would happen. And nobody commented on anybody else's food. And I was like, what? Nobody commented on anybody else's. I don't think I've ever been. Nobody even said, hey, is that good? Or, wow, this is really good. I mean, they did later. They talked about, like, oh, these fries are great, or, like, you know, I wish there was more ice in this. Like, you know. Mostly they just ate, though. Mostly they just ate, but they didn't, like, comment in a judgmental or probing way about each other's choices. Tell me about your food choices so that I can more fully understand you and also my own food choices. Yeah. Yeah, and so that I can evaluate the value of each of our moral standing based yeah. on what I believe about the importance of it. Yeah, so it was it was because I had dinner with a bunch of men. Because I guess women do this more than men? Yeah. Although men certainly do it. For sure, men also do it. But just I was at this table of a bunch of guys who just didn't do it. They hadn't internalized it the same way. Yeah. But Maybe they don't do it in a professional like setting the way women do. Maybe. It was not a super, I mean, we were at a bar. Like, it wasn't like But it a, was, they were, they were among work colleagues. Yes, they definitely were. Not among, like, their buddies. Yes. It wasn't their bros from high school. It was, like, people they knew because they worked together. Right. Yeah. So maybe that's a part of being able to uh, intervene effectively as a bystander is knowing that some other conversation is possible. Possible. That. Because we all have these scripts in our head of like what the next step in the conversation is. Yeah. And being an active bystander means knowing that you can change that script, that you don't have to follow it. And yeah, it's probably going to make people uncomfortable if you don't follow the script because we've got all their script in our heads of what happens next. Yeah. I say how fat I feel and you tell me, no, no, you're so thin. You don't have to worry about anything. Like we know that script. We know that script so deeply. Yep. So if I, like, talk about, oh, how fat I feel, and you're like, fat's delicious. Yeah. I don't know what to do about that. Yeah. There's a, like, when my stepkids were young, there was a lot of, oh, there's so much sugar in this. I'm like, yeah, isn't it good? (laughs) Sugar's delicious. Yeah, it's delicious. Yeah. And you were swimming upstream because there are other places in their upbringing where there was a lot of food shaming. 
Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, almost everything everywhere is made of food shame, so... Specifically yeah. in their lives, maybe a little more than other li- other kids, but yeah. Yeah. So I hadn't actually thought of that. That's a use. This is another one of those like end of podcast episode revelations where maybe the key to being an active bystander is recognizing that you can change the script. You can improvise and it's going to make people uncomfortable. Yeah. And you can be okay with that because you know that you're just expanding. You're just li- living in the space where you live. And declining to participate in the standard flow because that standard flow is harm. And something beyond that script is possible. Yeah. Which maybe explains why people want to know, like, what specifically words do I say? Because we already know the words in the existing script. Yeah. And we need a new script to replace it. But it's ultimately, I think, the valuable educational piece around this is not specifically what words do you say, but... What is it that makes it hard to know what words to say? And what makes it so hard is sometimes you're not the right person. Sometimes you don't know the information you need to intervene didactically. Sometimes you're not going to be listened to no matter how informed you are. And sometimes you do not have the wherewithal to intervene directly. Something, nothing you say is going to intervene. And sometimes no matter what you say, people are going to be uncomfortable with the fact that you did not go with the script. And that's the main thing, especially given that women are taught to be pretty happy, calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others at all times. Inevitably, to be uh, an active bystander is to violate your role as a human giver and to invite criticism of you based on the fact that you have not followed the script and behaved yourself. I have an art entertainment analogy about knowing that a different script is possible, which is that the first time I, I went and saw the new Ghostbusters in the theater with Melissa McCarthy and Kate McKinnon, you know, the new Ghostbusters. And about halfway through the movie, I realized there have been no fat jokes. Like, there have been no, the pretty girl gets the guy, inevitable, you know, stream towards the usual script. I literally cried halfway through the movie because they weren't doing the script. And I was like, Another script is possible. Women can just be characters. Are you kidding me? I didn't... Somebody's actually doing that? It was amazing. So anyway, that's how you know that a new script is possible. It's like, it blows your mind. The world does not have to go the way that I assume that everybody else says it goes. This is something I've been dealing with specifically because I'm in the copy editing process of the new uh, revision of Come As You Are. Mm. And I don't know what it is about copy editors and sex books, but every <laughs> single copy editor I have ever had yeah. has tried to impose their sex negative, body shaming, <sighs> rape culture, misogynist, gender binary shit into my book. Mm-hmm. The, the most shorthand example of this is the first copy editor looked at the illustration of a vulva that's in chapter one. It's illustrated by Erica Moe and it's so beautiful. Yeah. And uh, there was a comment from the copy editor yeah. on an illustration in the book that said, can we please remove some of the pubic hair? Yeah. No, let me change that. She used italics. She said, can we please remove some of the pubic hair? No, no. And the fact that you feel that way is exactly why we can't. So that's just one tiny example of the hundreds Mm -hmm. of opportunities at least half a dozen copy editors have now taken 
to try to impose their body shame, their rape culture, their like really mundane, ordinary, wrong shit in their head about sex into my book. Yeah. And I have to fight every single one. Why? Because they're imposed. They cannot imagine the sentence as hormones change without the word women as women's hormones change. This isn't a sentence about women's hormones. It's just a sentence about puberty. Yeah. I don't know what a person's gender is. All I know is if you've got these hormones and they change, it's going to have consequences like this. Yeah. We don't need to add the word woman. Yeah. So, yeah. One of the reasons maybe that I'm thinking about changing the script is that when I receive copy edits, what I'm receiving is other people's scripts that yeah. I'm working so hard in my book to yeah. change. Yeah. And when that script is not present in the book, they cannot help trying to impose the script on the book. Yeah. Well, the good thing is that your book introduces to them to the possibility that another script is possible. And like, look, hairy vulvas are normal. And you're introducing that to the readers. But like, it's the copy editor's job to facilitate your communicating your point, not to be taught by you and to need intervention. So yeah. that's frustrating. And, and they make these changes in spite of the fact that I literally write into the book, like in the introduction, when I use the words man and woman, I'm talking about social role and uh, psychological identity. I use right. male and female. I'm talking about body parts, biology. Those are things that any mammal can have. Yeah. So they don't learn. They yeah. do not learn from the book. Like... Which is very helpful for me to know. Yeah. However, you have also gotten emails from like translators and audiobook narrators in other languages telling yes. you like, I learned so much reading this book. Yes, this that made book. them cry. Yeah. Yeah. From translators of the book. Yes. Yeah. I know. The book is really good. People are learning. People, you're introducing them to the possibility of new scripts. Just for some yes. reason, copy editors. <laughs> Just English about... language copy editors turn out to be incredibly like rigid. Yeah. In their uh, under yeah, so <laughs> yeah. it's it's kind of a bystander intervention, and like I am standing between all of the non-binary and trans readers and this copy editor, and like all of the cultural nonsense that like it's my job to filter it out. I have to be the bystander, and I'm person C. Mm -hmm. The copy editor would do harm to this group of people. And I'm standing in the way with my stet, with my red ink, with my like, I'm not going to let you incorporate that. And it's exhausting. It's enraging. Stet is the marking you put into a manuscript to indicate that you do not want to accept the change the copy editor has made. Copy editor yes, says, stet means leave it as remove a stance. pubic hair. And you're like, stet means leave stet. that pubic hair. Leave the pubic hair as it is. Yeah. Because I put it there on purpose. Yeah. I asked for a very hairy vulva. Mm -hmm. And on that note... <laughs> Is there anything you else you want to say about bystander interventions and why they're important and why they might be difficult and what people can do about how difficult it is? When I think we talked about all the possibilities, it starts with knowing that another outcome is possible and then yeah. letting go of the possibility that you have to be perfect to intervene. You can just do anything. Something. And if you can't do anything, you can also delegate. And if that's not possible, you don't have to feel terrible. Not everybody is the right person to do everything every time. Right. You do the best you can with the resources you have available right now. Yeah. Sometimes you record the podcast laying in bed. Sometimes you do that. Well, I feel like this was like genuinely helpful. I feel like I had like a, a new insight. Good things happened. <laughs> Yay. Good. How are you? Do you still feel all right? Yeah. You gonna take a nap now? I have to go check and make sure Olive. Olive did not interrupt this podcast. This is like the first time. <laughs> And it's because she's downstairs in my house. Yes. So I'm going to go downstairs and make sure I didn't destroy anything. Cool. 
and then let them out to play. And then, yeah, I'm going to take a nap. Okay. Well, that is this week's episode of the Feminist Survival Project 2020. If anything was written, it was written by me, Emily Nagoski, or Amelia, who's uh, all still lying down. Music that you heard in the introduction is also by Amelia. If it was edited, it was edited by my marital euphemism. We are on the social medias at FSP2020, Instagram, and Twitter. And uh, thanks for listening. Um, the other one is PSA, which stands for Public Service Argument. It means that <laughs> I am... <laughs> I'm not there to teach you. I'm there to make a stir and to draw attention to the fact that that shit's not okay. The Feminist Survival Project 2020 is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.